You can either work in the business or you can work on the business. They have the knowledge and skill to be successful. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow has yet to come. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Welcome to the ProServe podcast with Collective 54, a podcast for founders and leaders of boutique professional services firms. For those that are not familiar with us, Collective 54 is the first mastermind community dedicated entirely and exclusively to helping you grow, scale, and someday exit your professional services firm. My name's Greg Alexander. I'm the lucky founder of this group, and I'll be your host today. And on this episode, I'm going to talk to you about improving your margins and how the importance of that changes over time as you develop your firm. And we're very lucky to have a great role model with us. He's a Collective 54 member. His name is Phil Alves, and uh, he's going to share a little bit of his perspective with you. So, Phil, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here, and um, please introduce yourself and your firm to the audience. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, so my firm is Dev Squad. Uh, we specialize in building SaaS products, uh, and I'm Phil. I'm the CEO of the firm. Okay, very good. And how long you guys been at it? Eight years. Eight years. Very good. And your journey, are you a software engineer yourself turned entrepreneur, or did you come at this from some other way? No, that's it. Yeah, I started as a software engineer. Um, from there, I I love product too, This the product side of yeah. like creating things and solving problems. And I, I moved to Utah. I'm originally from Brazil. I got a lot of job offers. I decided I would start this company course, having the connection to Brazil helped me have access to talent that wouldn't be too expensive and understood the market. And that was part of the, the first thing that helped us have like higher margins. Yeah. But but a lot of other things that we did after that. Yeah. So let's jump into that. So the topic today is margins. And I will say the, the space that you're in, which I'll broadly categorize, maybe incorrectly as software development, tends to be um, in relation to other professional services tends to be profitable, but not as profitable because software engineers are scarce. They're in great demand and the labor cost in this space tends to be high and uh, the end client is squeezing fees a little bit. So margins in software engineering tend to be a little bit low, but in your case, that's not true. So what are you doing to deliver exceptional margins? Yeah, so I, I believe like you talk about in the book, it cannot be a body shop. You have to, when clients come to us, what they're buying, they're buying our process, they're buying our culture. So we're very specific about how we do stuff. We do stuff differently, very opinionated. And then as we keep doing that, we are able to prove that we can do it in a better way than they will be able to do just themselves. So when they hire us, I'm like, you're not hiring developers. Uh, you're right. But I'm trying to position myself, not just as another software development company, but I'm trying to position myself as a consulting firm that specializes. I have my own way of doing things. And my way is better than you could do by yourself. And you're going to be pay a premium for that. And another thing that I like to say, when people are paying us, they're paying us to tell them what to do, not the other way around. Like we are really the experts. Uh, and like, I think another thing that's very important for our margins, it's we start like kind of like in a platform play. People would hire us because we're experts in a certain programming language, but we had to move out of that to, to 
charge more money, you know? So now people hire us because we own a vertical. Our vertical is like, we specialize in building SaaS products. We have built a lot of successful SaaS products where people went and had exits. So it's about, you can be selling just the people, just the bodies. You have to sell a process and you have to be in a vertical where there's enough margin uh, for people, where people are gonna pay for the expertise. Okay, so there was a lot there. I want to unpack that a little bit. And congrats to you for having clear uh, command over this subject. I think some of our listeners might not be as advanced. So let's go slowly here. So one thing you mentioned to me, I call it positioning. And you've positioned yourself as a consulting firm that specializes in software development, as opposed to a software development firm. And that move alone gets you into a different category. And it gets the client willing to pay a different fee because they're comparing you to other consulting firms, which tend to charge more. And it gets you out of that category. Now, and we're going to go through the other ones that you just rattled off, but let's stay with that one for a moment. Sometimes when you try to reposition yourself in such a way, the client says, give me a break. You know, you might be trying to reposition yourself as a consulting firm, but you're not. You're really a software development firm. So how did you overcome uh, that perception and how did you convince the world that you really are a consulting firm? I think... It's like, actually, when you're coming up, you're going to have some customers that you're actually going to do consulting and other companies where you're actually doing development. And the more of those customers that you're actually doing real consulting, um, it's the more a track record that you can show. So we are to a point right now that when I meet with a customer, I explain to them, look, when you hire us, you get a product manager, you get a UI designer, you get a playbook of how we do stuff. And that was developed over the years. So we didn't start here. Sometimes we did tell customers that were less than ideal, but as we kept growing, we just kept getting more and more uh, picky about our customers. If the customer doesn't believe what I'm trying to sell him, I'll be like, you're not a fit. Because yeah. at this point we have a funnel and I like last month alone, I had 40 people that reach out to us and then they can pick. And if they don't, if they don't, it, it's a, it, it becomes a picking game and some people don't believe or like they don't, that's not, that's not what they are buying. And that's okay. We have to sell for the people that want what we are selling. Yeah. I mean, just a great demonstration of sticking to your ideal client profile, you choosing who you're going to work with, people that recognize your value and are willing to pay for it. Um, I'm sure there was a time when you were coming up in the early days that you couldn't pick, you know, all revenue was good revenue. You had to turn the lights on and, and pay the employees. When did that happen? When did the, when did the paradigm shift to where you, you have a, just a huge funnel and you get to choose who you want to work with? I think like when the money was coming in, I invest that money in building that funnel, in building that positioning and it changed when I realized that we're gonna get leads no matter what. Mm. It, it went like my pay-per-click and my SEO are delivering what they're supposed to deliver. Mm. And then when I could trust that this I'm gonna get customers, that's when I start to change. And then we even start to replacing. We had customers that work with us maybe for a long time, but there wasn't our ideal customer. And then we just replaced those customers for ideal customers. Uh, but I, I think it's about putting your money and investing your money in creating the channels and creating the positioning so you can be where you want to be. Okay. So let's talk about investment. So sometimes founders of boutique pro serve firms, they see excess money in the bank account and the temptation is too strong. They pull it out of the bank account and buy a new car or something like that. You didn't do that. You 
kept the money in the business and reinvested it in these ways, which ultimately resulted to where you are today, which is a very successful, thriving firm. So how did you, how did you overcome that temptation? How did you resist the, the urge to build a lifestyle business and decide to really go for it? Actually, I read a book called Profit First, and I had some money that I took out. And then that money, I could do whatever I want. So I did buy a nice car, uh, <laughs> I drive a Porsche. I didn't buy an airplane. I have a, but look, a lot of the, most of the business, the money actually stayed in the business and I got to reinvest that money on the business. So it was about having processes. Like the same way that I have a process of how we run the business, like fulfillment. I had a process about what I'm going to do with this money. And there was only a small portion and it, it gets smaller as the company get bigger. You know, but there was only a small portion of that money that would go around as play money because you still want to get the rewards of what you were doing. And it was just about sticking to that process. They allow me to have the money to reinvest in the business. Very good. When I asked you about margin improvement, the first thing you said was not being a body shop. And when somebody hires you, they're not hiring an extra pair of hands. They're hiring process, playbook, culture. Um, which is a really compelling package. Um, I'm assuming, because the margins are where they are, that you're able to charge a premium and that your target customer is paying a premium for process, playbook, and culture. And that's, exactly. why, that's why you're not a body shop. So, so how were those things developed? How have you protected them? How do you prevent your competitors from stealing it? I think it's very hard to steal culture. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Good point. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of like the thing that we, from day one, I, I really emphasize the culture that we want to build and how we want to be. And that had different inter interactions. Like we improved that culture. One thing that really helped us, we start doing EOS as we grew. And EOS does cover culture, it covers process. They have ways that you can use to, to implement those. Like, so like the same way, basically I didn't try to reinvent the wheel. I, I read a lot of books. I, I found processes that work, uh, including your book yeah. and I just replicate that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And <clears throat> tell me a little bit about your culture. And I know EOS covers culture and it, and it suggests how to build it and track it, but each company has its own unique culture. And you've mentioned that word so many times here. And in the context of profit and margin expansion, I don't often hear the word culture, so I'm intrigued by this. Tell me about your culture and, and how does it contribute to your success? I believe that the teams that build amazing software products, regardless, it's not because of the talent, it's because of the culture that the team has. So the team, the culture that we develop is a culture that we say, make it happen. Simplicity. We are all about simplicity. So we want to be very simple. Um, play as a team and value beyond expectations. Those are our four values. We talk about them all the time. We have a lot of softwares to um, to track and people can reward other people for keeping the values. Uh, when you're making decisions inside the company, you make decisions based on those values. And I think the biggest one is like make it happen in simplicity. We want to keep it simple and, and to get things to the to the other side and get it done. And like, for example, we work with ADP, big uh, Fortune 500 company. And the way the ADP does things, you can they overcomplicate everything. Yeah. So they come to us and they're like, wow, you got this done in six months. We, we had expected doing two years. And it's because our culture, 
it, I could get the same people that work for ADP put inside my system, my processes. If they follow how we work, they also would get the process done in, in in six months. So like, I like to say culture is the way that we do things around here. Uh, and, and that's kind of like what we try to to pass down and to always talk about and, and to develop. And sometimes we have to understand that we get bad things about our culture too. Culture is like how we do things. It's not only the good things. So like recently uh, we have a lot of people in Brazil where I'm originally from and people are showing up late late to meetings because that's part of Brazilian culture. Like mm-hmm. you show up late and I'm like, that's not acceptable. And then we, we correct the things inside our culture. So, so it, it became a high-performing culture, uh, you know, so, so yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you talked to your leadership board about recently um, was the the push pull between or the the tension between doing really good work for your current clients which obviously is very important and taking on new clients and at some point and this happens to all of us you have to do more of one or the other so how do you decide and how do you balance those two you know decide when to take on new clients when not to take on new clients when to focus on the existing clients that you have how do you how do you think through that yeah, I think it has to be, do I have the leadership inside my company ready to onboard the new customers? Mm-hmm. Do I have the customers inside the ideal customers all happy? Because there's no point in losing the customers that I have just to onboard some new big customers. Uh, and we have been growing a lot year over year, but out frequently I'm going to be like, we are not taking customers this quarter. Mm-hmm. And we're able to sometimes get people to put a deposit down and, and start the next quarter. Uh, and I was the first time someone paid me a bunch of money not to work. I was like, what? <laughs> so, you went out so, and bought a plane. No. <laughs> yeah, I bought a plane. <laughs> that's so, funny. So, but, but that's kind of like, it is how we work right now. It, it is because if I'm not a body shop, I have to have the time to, uh, in the consulting, you get the people from down the pyramid and move them down to management. Yep. And if I don't have that person trained yet, it, it, it's about having the actual leadership ready to onboard customers and add value. They understand the culture, they understand the playbook. And sometimes I cannot develop these people fast enough. Mm. Uh, and if that's the case, I have to wait on taking new customers. Yeah, I tell you, that's a, that's a great problem to have. I mean, you have so much work um, the limitation isn't finding clients. The limitation is developing the talent quick enough. Speaking of talent, you mentioned that you're from Brazil, but you live in Utah. Is your talent spread out all over the place or is it in one location? Do you use a remote workforce? Does people come to the office? How does it work? Yeah, so I have an office in Utah. It's a remote first culture. There's about 10 people that live in Utah. They come to the office if they want to. Uh, we do have customers fly here for us to do some workshops. Um, we call it the design sprint. So the workshop sometimes will happen in person, um, but most of our work's remote and the workforce in Brazil, it's about a hundred people now. Wow. Uh, they are, they're all uh, remote anywhere in the country. Um, so there's no physical location at all in Brazil. There's one here in Utah, but it's a remote first. Like you don't have to always come to the office. You come to the office if you want to, yeah. or if you have a customer flying here, like sometimes we do have customers fly for us to do like their two days workshop before we start the product. Now, since culture is connected to the margin expansion that we're talking about today, you have a remote workforce, remote first. Some would say you can't build a culture in that environment. You're clearly proving that not to be true. So is there anything about building culture in a remote workforce that's different 
than building culture in an on-prem situation? Yeah, I think you have to be a lot more intentional when you have a remote workforce. Uh, you have to really spend the time. Culture has to be a priority. You have to talk about culture. You have to, ha I have this thing called the culture squad. And these people are, are their own responsibilities to make sure people are understanding and getting the culture and they're holding like events and, and they're doing stuff because it's harder. Uh, like people, people get to know each other, but I think there's some of the basic human needs that are fulfilled when you go to the office that are not automatically fulfilled when you work remotely. Like you want to have connection and you want to have a couple of things that's a little bit harder in a remote environment. And we have been doing that before. It was cool to do it. So we know how to do it. <laughs> so tell me about the culture squad. I love that idea. So how many people are on the culture squad? What do they do for you? How does one earn a spot on the culture squad? Like that sounds, that sounds like a fun, a fun gig to have. Tell me about that. So it's a Slack group. There's probably like six or seven people in that group. They get connect once a month and they have a budget and their goal is to put together events and things that will promote the culture. So they usually, they're doing workshops where they're not just themselves. They're getting someone from the overall company to do a workshop. So they're promoting their workshop and people are coming, they're participating. Uh, they are like deciding who is the employee of the month and they are running surveys to figure that out. They're looking at like the reviews that employees give to each other. Uh, they are looking at problems that we might have in the culture because like I, I told you before, I think culture is the good and is the bad. Yeah. And you have to realize when the bad is happening. Uh, and so they are responsible to to point that out. So like the late thing, I didn't notice that. They brought to me and they're like, hey, people are getting late. Uh, and their solution was for me to go and tell the whole company to stop doing. But but, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but they, they will figure out those problems and they will sometimes... Uh, have ideas of how to address and how to strengthen the culture in different ways. Like, so they say, Hey, this month we're going to talk about simplicity. What, what, what everything that we can do to, to get people to understand what simplicity is. And they, they're going to share case studies. They're going to do whatever to, to get people to understand. And people that get to the squad, uh, I decide personally, like I got together with my management team and we just got people from different areas of the company that really understood the culture to represent who we are. And we put those people in that squad. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, one thing you mentioned also was that you, you guys build SaaS products. That's your core business. You know, every time you pick up the newspaper, turn on the TV, go online these days, you know, they talk about the SaaS industry going through a tough time. Have What's your take on that? Have you have you seen any any pullback, and has that affected your business or not? No, that hasn't affected our business. Um, these are most like public companies that were over leveraged, in my opinion. Uh, a lot of our customers, they're like smaller in the B two B space. They are like running profitable business, uh, and, and they're doing this just fine. And, and we have even more people that are coming to to build their SaaS products because they are an expert in a niche and they're building a product for someone just like themselves. Yeah. Like we just start a product for a guy that has, uh, I think he has close to a bunch of car washes. I won't say the number, so I won't say wrong, yeah. but let's say more than a hundred car washes in the whole country. And then he knows how to run car washes and he knows all the softwares out there are not great. So yeah. he wants to build a software for other businesses just like his. And of course he's very profitable and he's going to be just fine uh, to the recession or whatever is going to happen in, in the coming months. 
and people still got to wash their cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all right, well, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I, this is my second company, Collective 54. My first one was started during a different era back in 2006. And I can tell you I'm rooting for the SaaS industry because the ease that I can run my business now, I mean, I run my entire business off my phone. And the cost to run my business is plummeted. And it's because of all these fantastic SaaS products that are available and just cloud, complete, cloud computing in general. So um, I wish you much continued success. I, I love having you in the group. I love to hear that a, that a consulting company that specializes in software development can run healthy profits because of things like process and culture and playbooks. You know, and it's a great counterexample to some who feel the space you operated in has been completely commoditized. So congratulations to you and all the success that you've had. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Okay. All right. So for those that are listening that are not a member and you might think about joining because you want to meet really fun and exciting people like Phil, uh, go to collective54.com and you can fill out an application and be considered for membership. If you're not ready to be a member, but you want to keep educating yourself and consuming content, uh, the same website, collective54.com, there's a resources section and you can subscribe to Insights. You'll get a weekly podcast, a blog. Um, we produce a chart of the week, which is a visual representation of benchmarking data. We even have a best-selling book called The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Firm. So I encourage you to, uh, to check that out as well. But uh, that's the end of this show. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.